Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. So for this week's episode, I've come up to Manchester for the Conservative Party conference. And what is so striking here, Helen, is this sense of doom about the party's prospects for the next election. And it just feels so different to the start of this Conservative Party era in 2010. You know, we've got the front page of the Manchester Evening News today going at the Conservative Party for its failures to level up the country. You've got the great issue of the conference being a high-speed rail and its failure to reach Manchester, apparently, although we still don't know. This is so different to 2010 when there was this great pledge to connect all of the country from London to Glasgow to Edinburgh, even to Wales. So the question that we're going to ask this week is, what does this 13 years of Conservative government tell us about the state of British politics and the British economy? You are the Prime Minister of this country. This is your decision. Is this going to happen or not? As I said, we've got spades in the ground. I'm not going to comment on further speculation. This is not about the politics. This is about doing what's right for the country in the long term. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. You know, that needed to be undone. I started the work of undoing that. Do we have the fairest credible path to reach net zero by 2050? I've examined our plans and I don't think they meet that test. So Helen, let's go back to the start. How did we get here? I think we need to start with what David Cameron and George Osborne, and clearly it was their Conservative Party, even though they were having to govern because of the outcome of the 2010 election with the Liberal Democrats. What were they trying to do? What was their critique of what was wrong with Britain? And they really did think something was wrong with Britain. If we look at that in terms of the economy, it was in their mind that there was far too much debt. They blamed Labour for that. There was far too little private sector investment too much public sector investment, not enough saving, not enough parts of the economy where you could look to Britain and say Britain had established global leadership or international leadership in a particular um, sector. 
And that meant, I think, that the politics of, in economic policy terms of that first government was like dominated by two things. One obviously was austerity, the aim of bringing down the public sector debt, which meant bringing down the budget de deficit and making public expenditure cuts in order to do that. And then at the same time, trying to reform, if you like, the supply side of the economy. And a good part of that, and this is interesting, I think, for where we're going to end up, actually was about having a, a regional strategy about the North. In a way, like HS2, the Northern powerhouse, uh, as um, George Osborne liked to um, talk about, was about trying to bring the North up to the level of the, the Southeast um, economically. So... In that sense, I think that it was like, we need higher economic growth, debt's standing in the way, but there is something about where the, the conservative story is going to go about leveling up that's there from the beginning. It's just a, it just has a completely different form to it and in the coalition period than it was going to have by the time that Johnson is taking it up post-Brexit. Yeah, I guess we've had an element of regional policy in British politics going back decades, going back to Wilson and White Heat in 1963, we've had lots of governments attempting it. I guess we had Thatcher with those, that famous picture of her with in Teesside with the spade in the ground, and yet it never seems to really work. What I find difficult trying to assess the Conservative Party's reign, if you like, from 2010 to today is to sort of break it up into its various bits and try to judge it before the crises that came about. How do, Was it a success or was it a failure? And so thinking about that era that you're talking about there, Helen, say 2010s to, say, 2015, and their attempt to uh, cut the deficit and to get more private sector spending and investment going, like how successful were they? Because from... From what I can see, they never hit their targets on the deficit. And in fact, they were much closer to what Alistair Darling was suggesting was a sensible approach, which I think was to halve the deficit in a parliament. And George Osborne said he was going to cut it entirely. Yeah, I think if you if you look at it in terms of the politics of um, reducing the budget deficit, which obviously was quite a lot about what the, the, the coalition government came um, to be about, it wasn't a success, even in its own terms. And that's leaving aside the question of the consequences of the public expenditure cuts, particularly for uh, local government, I would say. And if you go to the 2015 election, and at that point, really, the targets haven't been achieved from on the budget deficit side from what being promised in like 2010. And then Osborne sufficiently worried that he's he's making essentially fiscal commitments that don't fit in with the, the budget deficit has to be the um, priority. So I think there's a strong sense by 2015 that they've paid a, a significant political price for public expenditure cuts and they're very nervous about pushing that any further. And I think it's also important to see that actually part of that is is because the fiscal environment has just got a lot easier because of the change in the monetary environment between the beginning of that first conservative government or the coalition government, I should say, and 2015. Because quantitative easing and low interest rates or zero interest rates have really prevailed 
uh, as monetary policy through that period. So whilst there was a way at the beginning of like say, we need to get the, the budget deficit down because the markets can really cause, the bond markets can really cause considerable damage to us. Look what's happened to Greece. That was kind of an argument that George Osborne and Nick Clegg for that matter were keen on back in 2010, 2011. That argument isn't going to play in 2015. And then there's a separate question, I think, is what you're getting at then, Tom, about why doesn't then the regional policy aspect of it around the North trying to use private sector investment to improve Britain's economic productivity, particularly in the North, and to get higher levels of private investment into the region. Why doesn't that work? And I think that goes back to much deeper like structural questions with the British economy. And that's where I think your argument that actually that there's an, an ongoing story about this that actually precedes the Conservatives coming into power is pretty important. Yeah, I mean, going back and looking at what the Conservative Party plan was, the Northern Powerhouse was the idea that the way to level up the country, in quotes, before we use the term levelling up, was to focus on Manchester, essentially, as the great uh, the great northern city that was closest to being able to have some kind of economic takeoff, and that if you gave it the the autonomy and the infrastructure that could act as a kind of you know London of the north and it could bring in the other conurbations in the north from Liverpool to Leeds to Sheffield and you could connect this whole kind of region up and I think I remember at the time listening to people who were espousing this idea and they would look to the United States and they would see these great kind of urban conurbations there and say, would would say how they were connected up and how that they were just so much wealthier when you compared when you compared you know Chicago region say to to the greater Manchester or Birmingham region and this was a kind of idea that was very Osborneite and then I I, I have this memory of Xi Jinping coming to Britain and being taken up to Manchester. So he didn't just have that pint down in the Cotswolds with with David Cameron. He was brought specifically up to Manchester and you had Manchester City players being pictured with Xi Jinping. I think it was Sergio Aguero at the time. And, and you can kind of see how it made sense. And there was a story that those close to Osborne were, were sort of spinning, which was, okay, we didn't succeed in cutting the deficit entirely in a single parliamentary uh, term, but we did have decent economic growth. You know, we were growing at a rate, despite austerity, that was better than most other countries in Europe. And the story that they tell is that this comes crashing down in 2016. I mean, I think as you've kind of suggested, Helen, it's that's not really the entire story, but there is something in it although we felt there was something more in it until the recent economic changes to the statistics, which have again clouded the picture, but we'll come back to that uh, later in the episode. But what do you think? I mean, do you think that's, do you think there's something in that, Helen, that they were actually on to a, a strategy that kind of made sense, including from the Chinese investment into into the regions? I have to say I'm more on the sceptical side about this. I think that if you look at, the positive story, if you like, that Osborne, I think, was particularly um, keen on um, 
it's quite dependent on the problems of the Eurozone. Now, I think that is actually pretty consequential then for what happens to this government around Brexit. But I think if you look at the, the growth story, if we just concentrate on that for a moment, actually the initial year or so, maybe 18 months or so, in fact, you know, 18 months or so of that government, probably perhaps going somewhat into 2012, the economic story is weak. And then what happens is that whilst the Eurozone economies, a lot of them go into recession in the latter part of 2011 into 2012, which is really, or in significant part anyway, a result of the fact that the European Central Bank increases interest rates through 2011, in contrast both to the Bank of England and to the Federal Reserve, and they do so in relation to very high oil prices that the Bank of England just lets go and absorbs the inflation. That's where you start to see a growth divergence between the Eurozone and the UK economy. So I, I think it's harder to tell a story which says that this is about this any kind of success really of the conservative government's economic reforms. It's more about the comparison. And I think that is important. And you picked on something which I really think is important, which is this idea that actually that Osborne becomes ever more, I'd say, committed to. And I know that we've talked about this before in our episode on Britain's relationship with um, China, is for Osborne, it becomes more and more, I think, about attracting Chinese investment. So if you go back to the manifesto, the story is supposed to be that we're going to have more savings. We're going to learn to save more, essentially, and that out of domestic savings, we're going to be able to have more private sector investment. But that, I think, was always a very strange argument in the context because savings in a context of like zero interest rate monetary environment, that's not seeing the kind of context in which you can drive savings up. So in that sense, then the substitute for the initial assumption, strategic assumption, is actually then having to rely more and more on foreign investment. And given the commitment that Osborne's made to the golden age of China relationship, as you like to think about, it becomes Chinese investment. But even there, I think you can see some of the contradictions, because if you go back, if you go to Hinkley Point C, you know, the nuclear power reactor that we've talked about before, you go back to the manifesto and it says quite explicitly, there will be, we build new, more nuclear power stations, but only if there's no public subsidy. <laughs> yeah. So only if the state isn't going to be involved in that. We don't build nuclear reactors that way. And so then actually when it becomes clear that you're going to have the Chinese involved in it, actually then the government has to give us a succession of essentially de facto public subsidies to nuclear power. So that way in which it was kind of supposed to be against the state, it's going to be about the private sector. It's well, it's actually the Chinese government and then having to back British government money against it. It's so fascinating, Helen, to, to listen to you talk there and just to, I, I just can't help but think of like the Thatcher governments kind of making similar political pledges about what they're trying to do to regenerate British industry and British capital and what they end up doing, and this is a David, the David Edgerton book is very good on this, is kind of globalizing Britain, getting global capital to move to the UK, which is a very different thing. It's And you kind of have this sense of British governments like facing into a, a global winds and trying to do things, but ultimately they're just kind of sailing 
with the wind from that comes from somewhere else. That's all they can do in the end. And we judge the performance relatively, don't we? So you were saying there that Britain's economic growth was diverging from the Eurozone and we were made to look better because the Eurozone was having difficulties. I mean, again, I think back to Thatcher and I think, you know, you look at these long-term economic graphs of British growth and nothing much ever changes, although we slightly slow down. We had higher economic growth in the years before 1979 than we did on the whole after 1979. And yet our perception of those two different worlds is so different. And as I understand it, in large part, because other countries started doing worse, you know, other countries were doing better in that previous period. So we felt worse about our economic growth. And then at a time when they start to do worse, we're doing no better, really, just in terms of economic, pure economic growth. We start to feel better about ourselves because we're outperforming them. And you can see that in that period between 2010 and 2016. And then that obviously has flipped. And then so that sense of how well we're doing is so dependent on what somebody else is doing. And then you can see that, again, I'll just bring it back to today very quickly, but we have these pledges about achieving the highest growth in the G7. That's the Labour Party pledge. And you think, well, how, how do you control that? Like, how do you control You can't control how well China, France or Germany are going to perform. And so how can you pledge something like that? But I just think it's interesting psychologically how we have these ideas of becoming a savings society and we'll use that to to invest in in big infrastructure projects in the country and what do we end up doing we end up turning to china to try and get some money into the into britain at the very moment that china starts turning into something very different from what it seemed like it was at the start of the decade i mean i think that the other thing i would add here is if we look at it the 2010s as a long decade well really if we say that starts after the 2008 crash and we try and tell if you like a Western story about that and bring the United States into it, I think that the long story of it is actually the serious divergence between the United States and Western European countries in particular, but Europe in general, but Western European countries in particular during that um, decade. And one thing I think which is a pretty important part of that is, is that the United States just has a really very different energy decade in the 2010s because of the shale boom than any European country um, has. And the shell boom actually ensures that it's one of the reasons why America has higher growth for quite a lot of the 2010s than, than most European countries do. And it's interesting if you go and look at the manifesto from 2010 again, there's quite a lot of critique of Labour's energy strategy, basically saying it's kind of like a just-in-time operation and there's nothing strategic about it. But it's not really clear there's anything that's any different about conservative policy, not just actually the the, during the coalition period, but thereafter. And that's, I think, because underlying this, and this goes actually back to the middle of the previous decade, is you know the British economy is grappling with being a quite significant energy importer. Again, it's been that it's been a net importer again since four. I think that there's one thing we should turn to to get us on to. Brexit, because obviously this is central to the decline of the Cameron Osborne, the end of the demise of the Cameron Osborne project. And that's about actually something to do with the North and the, the Northern powerhouse strategy, because it's very much, isn't it, about the bigger cities in the North. And then if we think about Brexit, a lot of this is about actually 
northern, it's not only obviously, but some of this is about northern towns. And that this is a place that where there's a lot of leave voters in the end to be found. And in that sense, I think there's something about Osborne's obsession in a way with Manchester that comes back and haunts him when it gets to 2016. Because obviously it is Brexit that brings the Cameron Osborne version of 2010-ish conservatism to an end. Yeah, well, I'd say it it doesn't just haunt George Osborne or David Cameron and, and the obsession with Manchester, but really, again, taking this story much further back and thinking of the regeneration efforts under New Labour and thinking of all the great sort of northern cities that went through this regeneration, Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle, places where if you go to the city centres now, they obviously look much better and and are much better but you don't have to go far you know i remember bumping into some dutch walkers along the hadrian's wall who had started in newcastle and you start in wall's end in newcastle and they were just completely shocked at the state of parts of newcastle that they had to walk through and they were just seeing what was there that there was a Newcastle is great in the city centre, but you do not have to go far and the regeneration hasn't got there. And of course, the same story is true once you leave Manchester into Greater Manchester or into Greater Liverpool or into anywhere in the northeast or any of those parts of the sort of infamous Red Wall now that largely voted for Brexit. And so, yeah, again, it seems this combination of these forces from abroad, David Cameron grappling with a Eurozone crisis and what that meant for British power in the EU and the veto that never was a veto and deciding that to solve this problem of British influence, he needed to call a referendum and that it needed to be an in-out referendum, combining with these long-term failures of British domestic policy to level up the regions and to level up places outside, you know, outside of of the southeast and some of the great metropolitan centers in the north and then they collide to end the the Cameron Osborne project in 2016 and this is this the first of the great crises really that define this period of conservative party rule and that would end up you know speeding up over the next few years but i think what is interesting when you're trying to pick apart this period is to say well how much did that change the underlying economic challenges that Britain faces or economic performance, that that moment in 2016, that referendum and then Britain's eventual uh, exit three years later, how much has that affected the underlying growth statistics, you know, the achievement of the of this conservative era? Or how much do we say, well, that completely changed everything? Because that decision in 2016 not only ended George Osborne and David Cameron politically, but it ended their project. It ended their project of being able to be the gateway into Europe for Chinese cash, which undermines a large part of their economic project. It undermines a large part of the the project to, to turn Manchester into a northern powerhouse. It's very, very fundamental. And then you pull the camera further back and you say, well, what do the growth figures look like from 2010 to 2023? And we're seeing the revisions that are happening to them now and we say that it's hard to argue that there was some dramatic kind of moment in 2016 which changed Britain's uh, growth trajectory. Yeah, I mean, I think that what changed, obviously, in 2016 was fundamentally was the politics of the Conservative Party. And then 
what we see in the next two prime ministers, because I think in many ways Theresa May was trying to do what Boris Johnson did constructing an electoral coalition in 2019, she was trying to do that in 2017, was to say that actually the Conservatives could reposition themselves to be the party that was concerned with the concerns of what we're going to get to come to be called like red wall voters. So it forced the regional part, if you like, of the initial Cameron Osborne project into the centre, but it did so on very different political terms. So levelling up wasn't actually going to be the northern um, powerhouse and it wasn't actually really going to be tied to more Chinese um, investment uh, in the country. It was an attempt to try to say in a way that we will try to rejuvenate these areas economically more on their own terms and less from a kind of strategic vision, if you like, from Westminster. And that didn't work out really for Theresa May because she couldn't actually get to grips with the Brexit problem itself and how actually to get the legislation through the House of Commons. It then, obviously, when Boris Johnson first became Prime Minister, precipitated him into a huge crisis, essentially you know, like a parliamentary crisis, a, a constitutional crisis, because he got to find out a way out of the, the Brexit issue whilst keeping the more, let's call it, Cameron Osborne wing of the Conservative Party, at least partially on side and found that actually impossible to do. Because at the centre of this political shift, I think, is the fact that the Parliamentary Conservative Party was not equipped to become the levelling up Conservative Party. And then I think if we get to what happened in 2022, where the Conservatives go through like three Prime Ministers, obviously a significant part of that is bound up with Boris Johnson's personality and the, the things he was asking Conservative MPs to do in defending him. But it's also, I think, because again, the Parliamentary Party ran into the fact that it wasn't set up to be Boris Johnson version of levelling up Conservatism. There wasn't enough people in the Parliamentary Party who were committed to that. Even I'd say from MPs who were representing the Conservative MPs who were representing the Red Wall seat. So by the time you get to 2022, and this is a point post-pandemic where the economic data really doesn't look very good at all. And crucially, I think it's also a period when sterling is in very significant decline through the first nine months of like 2022. Then it becomes, oh, we must be all about growth. Our problem has been that we concentrated too much on levelling up and we must get back to growth. That was kind of the terms on which the Rishi Sunak Liz Trust contest for the leadership took place in the summer of 2020. 22, and that was obviously, we must have growth, and really that's all that matters, was what Liz Truss thought her premiership was about. But what she didn't begin to get to grips with was the fact that the monetary and financial environment, particularly in the context of what was going on geopolitically, Russia's war, the energy shocks, was not compatible with what she wanted to do. Now I think we're, we're going to turn to Rishi um, Sunak, obviously, um, after the, the, the break. Um, but I think he's kind of caught them between the, the the two versions that we've seen since 2016, plus 
having to deal with the, the net zero. But I think it is a really important part of what happens in 2022. And this goes back, I think, to, to your point, Tom, is, is that this is the year in which the growth aspects of it, the economic data looks really bad. Yeah, I think uh, I was speaking to somebody about this at the Conservative Party conference last night and who's been at the centre of, of much of what we've been discussing. And they were saying, you know, if you think about it in the long term, the British economy is like a, a kind of super tanker. It's very difficult to turn it in any one direction, radically new direction. It's very hard to even to sort of really damage it in, in, in the short term. You can do things that will damage it over a long period of time and you will start to see that as you're sort of drifting off in one direction or another. But when you're thinking about things in five years or two year periods, it's very difficult to to do anything absolutely dramatic. Even these great decisions that we look back on and we feel that they're enormous moments in our kind of national story, Brexit, you know, is the most obvious example. But what seems to be happening is a kind of a political story in a way and a kind of economic story. And you've got different economic strategies about how where Britain is supposed to be going in the long term. And, you know, we're making these pledges in our manifestos and they don't really bear much resemblance to the reality because they're not really in tune with what's happening in the world. As you were saying, can you have a, a kind of savings strategy in the world that you painted there, Helen, in 2010? Can you get Chinese investment in a world of, of Xi Jinping? All of these things are happening way beyond the confines of British parliamentary democracy in a way. And yet the politics is there. The kind of the politics is changing much more dramatically than the overall kind of economic picture, it seems to me. The Conservative Party trying to figure out what kind of party it can be after 2016, almost getting there in 2017, then getting over the line in 2019. And then just seeing the sort of how shallow the roots are of what it actually built in in 2019, its commitment to levelling up, to be the kind of party that Boris Johnson built. I was, I was with uh, quite a few Conservatives last night, and they all have completely different visions at the moment of what the Conservative Party needs to be at the next election and where R Rishi Sunak needs to be taking them. And it, and it really does feel like you've had, you've had this kind of po uh, political lightning bolt that's come into the party, fractured it up, and they don't quite know which way to go now. But we should turn to that, Helen, after the break. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'd like to pay tribute to Liz Truss for her dedicated public service to the country. 
So, Helen, we're going to pick the story back up here in October 2022 when Rishi Sunak becomes Prime Minister, inheriting an extraordinary mess from Liz Truss. Now, he doesn't just inherit this kind of economic crisis that he has to deal with immediately, but he obviously inherits a lot of the baggage from this period of political turmoil from Theresa May through Boris Johnson and and Liz Truss and some of the commitments that they've made. Obviously, Brexit being a one of the great ones, but also the one that slips under the radar to begin with, at least, and is now a central part of our uh, politics is net zero, which first comes in under Theresa May. And then Boris Johnson keeps Liz Truss isn't there long enough to really do anything about. And then Rishi Sunak inherits. So Rishi Sunak is inheriting this this sort of set of politics and economic challenges, and also this kind of revolutionary policy. And that is then the context in which he has to start trying to define what kind of conservative offer he is making to the country, what kind of conservative prime minister he is going to be, and what kind of economic strategy he is going to have. And it's taken him pretty much up until now before we start to see what kind of conservative prime minister he's going to be. Yeah, I think... If we put it really brutally, he walks into number 10 in the middle of a currency crisis. Sterling's been heading towards parity. He walks into, the, I think I'm right in saying, the quickest collapse in polling of any party in power over that short period um, of time. So it would look like he's a hopeless prospect for being the prime minister after the next election when it would come and he's got to find a way of navigating around the politics of net zero at a time in which energy had become a much more salient political question than it had been either in 2019, 2021, well, perhaps not the latter part of 2021, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So these are like huge difficulties that he's inheriting. And it's not really possible, I think, to see how you anyone coming into number 10 in those circumstances could be at all optimistic about finding a way through them. And I think there is a sense, or there has been anyway, a sense of this being, if you like, a, a caretaker conservative government now, kind of biding its time until election has to be called and waiting to hand over, if you like, a, a set of problems, a huge set of problems in many ways, to the Labour Party. I think if you go back to that leadership election between Sunak and uh, Liz Trust, you can see that on the levelling up question, there really wasn't much difference between them. Neither of them were very interested in levelling up. In fact, I'd say both of them looked entirely indifferent to levelling up during that leadership contest. I think that if you'd asked Sunak then, he would have been like, I want to be a growth prime minister, not perhaps pursued in the same way in which Liz Trust did less emphasis on those tax cuts. But it's not at all clear he really wanted to be from the start the net zero prime minister. And I think that's the part where he's got into considerable difficulty because it runs it gets to some of the deep tensions that run not only through the Conservative Party about what kind of party that they want to be, but the whole, if you like, world picture of how do European economies in particular adjust to this 
new energy world to commit to this energy transition when they're not in the best either geopolitical position or material position in terms of the energy resources that they have in order to do it. And then I think what we've then seen is that in a way, the place where he's beginning to carve out kind of at least a temporary identity for the Conservative Party is to is to be a bit critical of net zero and to try and say, oh, actually, we'll play the fault lines, the domestic fault lines around net zero to our at least short-term electoral advantage, or they hope will be their short-term electoral advantage. Yeah, the word unprecedented is used a lot when, in fact, there are plenty of precedents that, that have happened in politics before. But I think Sunak's premiership is unprecedented in quite a few ways. You know, being the fifth prime minister in such a short period of time after an economic crisis of the type that he inherited from his predecessor. I mean, I think to win in such a scenario would be unprecedented. I think the closest parallel is the 51 to 64 period where you had Churchill, Eden, Macmillan and Home over 13 years. And then, of course, the Labour Party won at that point. But still, that's not exactly the same. This is this has been more of a tumultuous period. And yet, you so you have this sense of that, this, you know, the super tanker again, sailing through crisis after crisis. Again, another sort of degree to which this is an unprecedented period. You've had Brexit. You've had the constitutional crisis that followed. Then you, of course, had the pandemic, this ex- sort of extraordinary moment when the world economy is shut down. Then you have the crisis in Ukraine and the inflation crisis that rips into into Britain after, after the pa- pandemic and Ukraine. And in this period, we kind of accidentally, or not, or not accidentally, but we sort of stumble into this revolutionary policy called net zero, not with any sort of great sense of national debate over this, even parliamentary debate. You know, this is a, a revolutionary economic policy that we've just kind of agreed to without understanding how we're going to get there. We kind of fill in the gaps after we've committed to the overall policy. And then even Rishi Sunak, his speech from the other week in which he is starting to sort of claw back, as you say, trying to create divisions, political divisions that he can he can fight the next election over, he's still actually committed to the overall policy of net zero by 2050. He's just making tweaks within it, as far as I understand it, to say, we'll go a bit slower on this particular policy of net zero. We'll reach that goal five years later and we'll reach this goal five years later and we'll this kind of the vibes idea of politics we're, we'll give off a vibe of being on the side of the motorists or being skeptical to net zero but actually the kind of the grand picture here hasn't changed he's inherited that grand picture and he hasn't shifted from it yeah i mean i think if we go back to um, 2019 and we think about it not actually from Theresa May's perspective, who was the one who put the legislation through the House of Commons, but from Boris Johnson's perspective, so at the end of that year after the the general election, I think it's very easy to see what the theoretical attraction actually politically of net zero was. And this was true for other politicians, not just centre-right politicians, but particularly perhaps centre-left politicians like Joe Biden uh, in the United States, is, is that net zero was going to be a growth strategy. It was going to be, in British case, a levelling up strategy, in the US case, a green like New Deal. It offered the prospect 
of reshoring manufacturing production away from China, or at least it seemed to. It, it could be presented as something that would be job creating. And if you think about where offshore wind goes in terms of the, the North Sea coast, it could be even a way like a basically be union building like some commonality of energy interests between Scotland and northeast and then further down the uh, east coast I think part of the issue then is that actually in practice it's much harder than seemed to be the case for net zero to serve these other economic purposes it doesn't look like it's particularly thus far anyway job creating it's not actually yielding positive outcomes in terms of like regional inequality. It's much harder than it looks to reshore manufacturing jobs from China. So I, I think that there's two sides to this. There's the, how has net zero worked out for the Conservative Party in terms of what it was supposed to be able to do positively, politically? And then how has it worked out in terms of the really quite difficult distributional questions and the questions about people consenting to things like having to get rid of their boilers. How has it worked out in that respect? And I think the positives haven't materialised and the negatives or the difficulties have very much come to the political surface. So then I think you're absolutely right then, Tom, to say that kind of what you get from from Sunak is kind of like tactical manoeuvring around the, the... not the smaller policy detail, because it's not just smaller policy detail, but some of the specific policy detail, while saying, look, we have for climate change reasons um, and for geopolitical energy security um, reasons to continue with this, but we must try and find ways to do it in a more voter-friendly way. And perhaps we might find ways to do it in a particularly conservative voter-friendly way, which I think is where this, we can be the party of the motorists has come. I think though that though exposes that other tension, which is goes back and it runs through this whole period. That's one thing. But what are you going to then say to the the car companies and investors in the car manufacturing who want certainty? And is that going to help bringing international investment? I mean, because the UK is still an economy, as you said, you know, that is very dependent upon foreign investment. We don't have a, a big domestic manufacturing base outside a few particular sectors. So you're running that tension that's run all the way through this period between the strategic international economic vision in some respects and the domestic politics of this as it impacts upon the Conservative Party itself. I think the idea that net zero can just be a strategy which can only benefit the country. It's only on the plus side that you can decarbonize you will create more jobs producing more of this kit and that you will become more geopolitically secure as a result because you'll be less dependent on uh, middle eastern oil or russian gas all of these things that all sounds incredibly positive who wouldn't be in favor of that and then you see the reality of how it plays out and how difficult it is and say, we don't produce the wind turbines in Britain. You know, we import those from somewhere else. So we don't actually have the onshoring of jobs to produce these things that I imagine people assume would be made in the UK. That would be a great part of a kind of industrial strategy. But can we make those things here? Do we have the industrial capacity to do so at a cost that is reasonable? 
steel production. You know, you come up against these other policies that we're going through that we are not able to produce steel in the UK to do some of the most basic things in industrial policy because steel is made cheaper elsewhere and because of some of the net zero policies. I think we've just had a government announcement to give something like a billion pound subsidy to a car maker to be making uh, batteries uh, in in the UK. And then it's hitting against Rishi Sunak's strategy announced only a few days later that there won't be this rush to phase out diesel and petrol cars. So there's so many tensions, not just within the government's policy, but I think in the very reality of what net zero is going to be, there's kind of conflicts within it. And also I think there's a conflict within it when you think about geopolitical security, and you can see this when you think about North Sea oil. So you're faced with the world that we have today, and you want to move to a net zero economy, but you also, as part of that, you want to be less dependent on on other hostile states, China or Russia or the Middle East. And you have the question, well, do you open, do you search for new oil in the North Sea? Those two things come into conflict, and then it's a question of political priorities and short-term versus long-term. This is the meat and bones of politics. You can't just have a technocratic policy that says that everybody is in favour of and there is a consensus over net zero. It just cannot function like that because you're going to have so many conflicts about what in practice do you do and what do you place more value on. And I think this question of geopolitical security or just national security over some of the basics of what it means to be secure and safe as a country. Again, it came up in discussion with some conservative MPs and thinkers last night that we are no longer producing fertilizer in our own country and we are dependent on other countries for the production of fertilizer. Now, is that a basic question of national security? Is that something you just have to subsidize as a state? to ensure that you have a certain amount of food that is produced in the UK that is dependent on UK-made fertiliser? Or is that something that you can just accept as part of a kind of globalised world that you can happily get from somewhere else and you become dependent upon them? I think these are the kind of questions that are going to be absolutely central to our politics. I don't think we really know yet where our politicians fall down and where our political parties fall down on these questions because I I don't think they've got into our political divide yet in in a way that you can start to see well who falls on which side of this debate. Another thing that I've noticed is I, I have family that work on wind farms and the question of immigration and, and, and globalization comes into this because again we think let's onshore the production of wind farms and we'll have this great kind of industry that can rejuvenate all of the east coast the deprived east coast of of britain but a lot of people who are trained up to work on wind farms the rest of the world is doing this at the same time and they're offering fantastic salaries to go and work in vietnam or japan or germany or any of these countries offering salaries that we can't compete with. So at the same time that we have a big question of immigration that plays into our politics, we're going to have a question of emigration as well, of British skilled workers who are skilled in these net zero industries 
being incredibly highly valued around the rest of the world and being able to go and apply their trade around the rest of the world. See, you're suddenly going to have a whole load of new issues, I think, that we haven't even started to consider in, in our politics. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's two different things here. One of them is about the Conservative Party and the particular difficulties, I think, that it has with net zero politics. And one is actually across the board, and it's going to be true whichever party is in government. I think the one that's particular to the Conservatives or much harder for the Conservatives is it's really difficult to see, really for some of the reasons that you've just laid out, Tom, how it is possible to do net zero politics or to do net zero in policy terms, actually, without having an industrial strategy and without the state actually being quite involved strategically in a whole set of questions. And this is what the Conservatives have been running away from really since the end of Boris Johnson's premiership, is they don't want to be that kind of party, or at least enough of the parliamentary party doesn't to make it very difficult for it to be. But this is what they're committed to. And I think that this is part of the difficulty that, that Sunak's run into and why he's sort of tactically, if you like, nibbling away at net zero, because it commits to a kind of set of policy commitments that, that they don't want to go to. But I would say, though, that the lesson that they should take from the really George Osborne experience is if you're putting energy at the centre of politics, and it really is now there, is the state is going to be involved in that. I mean, that is what the story of the nuclear power story is in the end. There isn't any way, there isn't any way out of it. Markets are not going to function and deliver all the energy outcomes that the government says that it, it wants. So it can't be a, a pro-free market party. That's just kind of become a fantasy, I think, for an actually governing Conservative Party. I think the, the one, though, that you also touched on that just goes beyond the particular problems that conservatives face is this question about energy security and its relationship to importing energy from abroad. And that if we are saying that actually net zero means that we're not going to be making any more investments in oil and gas production in the North Sea, that means the logical consequence of that is, is that for the period, which is still some considerable time to come, which we're going to keep on, on needing oil and gas, and it has to be imported from abroad. And not everybody in Western Europe is going to be able to import oil from the United States. The Americans don't have that much of an export um, capacity. It's going to be from like the Middle East and um, Russia. And if we then think about the conditions that played their part in bringing this trust down, the weakness of sterling, how that's related to the balance of um, trade the current account um, deficit. The consequences of having to increase our energy imports, particularly oil and gas, so you might add at the moment electricity actually into um, that um, as well, is, is that our trade deficit is going to get worse unless something really significantly changes on manufacturing exports and the trade deficit gets worse and we're going to be back to having currency problems. And in a way, I think if you were like a historian, and I don't know how many times, let's say 50 years time, 100 years time, whatever, looking at the events of 2022 from a long historical perspective and saying, how did Britain end up with three prime ministers in the course of about, what was it, six weeks, seven weeks? I think they would might look at the fact that during all that year that sterling was coming like tumbling down. And if you think about that as long history, British political turbulence, with sterling crises, that looks part like of a pattern. And I, and I think that it's the problem that will face 
Labour government is going to continue to face the Conservative government, i.e. it's going to face any British um, government, is how is that interaction between our trade position, our currency and the energy questions going to play out? And that's a much bigger question than just this Conservative um, party question. Yeah, I mean, Helen, you know more about this than me. In the 70s, when we were facing similar challenges, and indeed the 60s, when Wilson was facing some of these questions, you know, he was facing problems that he couldn't really control, right? The British pound was falling in a way that he couldn't resist that inevitability. And it was it was part of a wider kind of global reality, whereas this is the way you've just painted it there is a consequence of policies that we've taken here in the UK to hit net zero by a certain date is almost certainly going to lead to a higher dependency on oil from abroad in the short term, which is going to then have consequences on the pound. I mean, is I mean that that again is that is there any precedent for that? Well, I think that the interesting thing, if you make a comparison here with actually Wilson. And it really was Callaghan because obviously when things got bad in uh, with Sterling in the spring of 1976, Harold Wilson said, I'm not going through that again after his experiences with Sterling in the in, in the 64 to 70 government and quit. And James Callaghan took over and he was the one who had to go to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and ask for the loan to support Sterling. But what's interesting about that episode is... The reason why that the Americans, and obviously the Americans were the ones really taking the decisions here about the terms on which the UK could borrow from the IMF, the reason why they weren't harder on it, where the conditionality was concerned, because they knew that North Sea oil was coming on stream soon and that the UK's trade position would actually improve considerably because we wouldn't be importing so much oil from abroad. So I actually think that this is actually in the relationship between energy, macroeconomic policy and sterling current account situation, that this is actually quite a lot harder than the 70s. The only way in which this would really change, it would be if electrification really speeds up quickly and then we have domestically generated solar, wind, nuclear power. I mean, that's leaving aside the question of like where the metals and the infrastructure come from, but we just think about it in sheer energy terms for a moment. And we really reduce the need for fossil fuel imports. That changes things, but that requires the speed of the energy transition really to accelerate. And particularly it requires electrification to go much quicker. And one of the things obviously that, that Sunak has been saying is, look, our national grid is not at the moment equipped to deal with generating a lot more electricity. Actually, UK electricity output has actually been falling for some for, for a while um, now. So while you can see in energy transition terms what the remedy might be, it's really difficult to see that it's a remedy that's coming um, anytime soon. It's just amazing, really, Helen, because the discussion here in Manchester this week is about the short-term economic trends and how are they going to play into the next election you know, likely in October next year, there's talk about a possible recession coming up, which means the Bank of England could be starting to cut interest rates. 
sooner than many of us thought and how inflation would be down and there could be a situation in which the economy is doing okay by the next election and people are feeling much better off than they are today. And this has given some conservatives some hope, at least, that they might do better in the next election. And then you pull the camera back, as you've just done, and you see the kind of the reality of what's facing us as a country. And just as you're starting to feel a bit optimistic about what might be happening, you start to say, God, the picture overall looks really bleak and tough and kind of hard to know how you how you manage that. I mean, as a kind of like finishing thought, like really for um, this week, I, I think that the central thing that comes out really in some ways of what we've been discussing is how very difficult it is for the Conservative Party in particular to match up a kind of political strategy for winning elections with actually dealing with this really tough set of uh, policy choices to be um, made. And I think that in that sense, perhaps from the point of view of, we just think of it as conservative political thinking, is that losing the next election and passing this set of problems on to Labour to deal with and giving itself time to like rethink what the Conservative Party can be as a potential possible governing party in this world in which we now live, which I don't think is at all friendly to Conservative Party politics is what lies ahead of them. And on that note, we'll leave it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Download wherever you get your podcasts, share and like with your friends and family. Next week, Helen and I are going to be turning to the Labour Party as it holds its conference in Liverpool and the challenges that it faces over the coming years.